Boasting is necessary. It is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool, because I would be telling the truth. But I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, good morning. Good to have you this morning, this chilly Sunday morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, I... uh, I can take for granted the, that your word is from you and that it's powerful and that your Holy Spirit speaks to us and that you want to lead us. And so right now we pause to say thank you, to acknowledge your presence and to say that we are open to your encouragement, to your challenge, to the work you want to do today. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard of a place called Disappointment Island? There's an actual place, actually, somewhere out around New Zealand. I just read about it recently, and uh, nobody's quite sure how it got its name. Some speculate that it was in 1520 when Magellan discovered it, and his men were looking for fresh water, and when they couldn't find drinking water, they gave it its name. Others say, no, 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 it was 1765-ish when the British tried to settle it, and the natives on the island were violently opposed to their agenda, and so they called it Disappointment Island. Others say it's just a place surrounded by shipwrecks, and so so it's got its name. Nobody's quite sure how it got its name, but the reality is haven't we all spent a little bit of time on Disappointment Island at some point in our lives. Maybe it was when you were a kid. Remember the first time you made a snowman and what your expectations were? In reality, it ended up being Disappointment Island. Or maybe when you went to college and what you expected college lecture to be. And you went to college and it was actually Disappointment Island. Maybe that's how you feel on Sunday mornings during the sermon, it occurs to me. Maybe it's just kind of life in general. You know, you, when you were a kid, you know, you looked at your career, you looked at your future, you looked at your finances, you looked at your romance, and you thought it's going to be up and to the right. But now you look back and you see the path has been Disappointment Island, about as predictable as a hummingbird's flight. What can you expect? Everybody experiences disappointment. What can you expect when you follow Jesus? 
lot of people get disappointed when they follow Jesus because Jesus promised, I've come that you might have life and might have it to the full. And yet he also promised, in this world you will have trouble. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that we're going to look at today, I think one of the most one of the most livable passages, certainly in 2 Corinthians, if not in the entire Bible, the Apostle Paul, a pretty good way to understand what he's explaining to us is what you can expect if you follow Jesus. What's realistic for you to expect? And if you're leading somebody to Christ, what do you need to help them expect as well? The first thing that Paul makes clear, and here's the good news, you can expect mountaintop experiences. You can expect euphoric moments. Paul begins here in verse 1 by saying, boasting is necessary. It's not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. A little backstory here. Paul had visited the Corinthian church a couple of times, but after he left, some false teachers came behind and started to lead people astray. And part of the reason they were led astray was because they were really impressed by the false teachers' stories and boasting about their spiritual experiences. And so Paul says, boasting is not a good thing. But since that's what you're impressed with, let me tell you about my spiritual experiences. And Paul shares with them something that happened to them 14 years earlier. Verse 2, he says, I know a man in Christ. Now, Paul here is using a literary device. He's speaking of himself in the third person. Because he knows the danger here is you're going to really focus on the person. Paul doesn't want you to focus on him. He wants you to see the experience. Focus on what God has done. So speaking of himself in the third person, he says, I know a man in Christ who was caught up in the third heaven 14 years ago. If you have your Bibles open, underline that 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Do you get the idea that Paul doesn't know if he was in the body or out of the body? You know, some people think they're really profound by investigating, you know, oh, I think it was this or I think it was this. Paul didn't know. If Paul didn't know, it doesn't matter, okay? Don't waste time on that kind of stuff. What matters is, I was, he was caught up into the paradise and heard inexpressible words which human beings are not allowed to speak. Now, the first thing I notice is, this is something that happened 14 years earlier, and this is the first time that we know of that Paul's actually sharing it. 14 years ago. If you experienced something like that, how long would it take you to share? If I experienced something like that, you know, I'm talking about it. You tell me a good cat joke, I'm telling it the next day. But something like this, you know, sometimes God gives us experiences, speaks to us, and it's not for us to try to impress others to share with us. It's just, it's just for us. Paul says, I was caught up into heaven, and I saw things that were not permitted to tell. A lot of people have near-death experiences, or what are sometimes called after-death experiences today. Sometimes say, well, some people just say it's the mind playing tricks on people, and maybe that explains some, but not all. Dr. Gary Habermas is a professor at Liberty University who, uh, if you wanted to study things on the resurrection, evidence for the resurrection of Christ, he, he, I think, is one of the best people to study. 
but he's also done a, a lot of research into what they call near-death experiences. He says there are o- over 8 million reported NDEs in the Americas alone, and that's not counting ones around the world that have happened in every cultures, in every, on every continent practically. He says there are evidential cases of people declaring, who have been declared medically dead, who have been revived and give reports that cannot be explained naturalistically. Some of them are just, you know, just, huh, how does that happen? Like there was this one person who said they, after they were declared dead, and they were out of their body, and they floated out of the hotel, uh, out of the hospital where they were, and on their way on, outside the hospital, they, they saw a shoe outside on like the third floor windowsill outside. And after they were revived, they said, did anybody know there's a shoe outside the windowsill on the third floor after, uh, you know, and they checked, and sure enough, it was. How do you explain that? More than one report of people who've left the body and have been able to explain in detail the medical procedure that was taking place in the room next to it or the room next to that accurately in detail. How do you explain that naturalistically? As I said, some of the stories are a little comedic. One woman died and her family was in another room and she saw her brother-in-law pacing back and forth and she overheard her brother-in-law say, if she's going to die, I hope she dies soon. I have an appointment to get to in an hour. She came too. Others heard him say that too. She came too and she said to him, when I was dying, did you say you hope I died soon because you had an appointment to get to? He turned about five shades of red and the rest of his family saw the whole thing. How did she know that? Paul said, I had this experience. I'm not sure if it was a vision or if I was out of the body. By the way, um, you can't verify whether people go to heaven and hell because you just don't know. There's no way to verify those things, he says. But this does give evidence that there is life after death. Paul says, I, I experienced this thing. What, Paul's experience is unique, though, because Paul says, what I experienced, no human being can talk about. I think Paul did see heaven. But can you imagine the spiritual euphoria he experienced, how close he must have felt to God. Have you ever experienced that? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have Tom and Pat shared with them, with you all, some spiritual experiences, some mountaintop moments where they were like, God was right there. God showed up for me. Maybe it happened for you when you were baptized. I'll never forget the night at the CIY conference, Christ Youth Conference, when I was in like ninth grade and I responded to the invitation to to commit my life to ministry. Tectonic plates shifted that night for me. I remember just weeping afterwards. Maybe it's after a great Bible discussion or God answers your prayers or miraculously provides for you. Or maybe he's healed a loved one for you and you just feel like, God, you are so close to me. Thank you. It's important to remember those times, but it's also important to remember that those seasons don't happen every day. 
You can't live for those experiences. Paul says, this happened 14 years ago. Dr. Dobson once observed that happiness is the result of a need met. I think one of the reasons that so many young people in Northern Virginia are miserable is because they never feel need. They're so indulged by their parents. Their parents are so concerned about them being happy that they never have deep felt needs and then longings and then have those needs met. A wealthy mom can give her child everything she, she wants all the time, but the process, and the process robs the child from, of joy. Happiness is the result of a need met, and God is not an indulgent, an overly indulgent parent. So appreciate those moments on the mountaintop, but don't get stuck in them, and don't chase them like some kind of addict looking for a dopamine rush through some next spiritual high. That's kind of weird, actually. 1988, the Washington Redskins won the Super Bowl. Anybody remember that? Anybody? Some vague memory of that. Did that really happen? Was that really, really, you know? But you remember what happened when they won the Super Bowl? Everybody, I was in Springfield at the time. I mean, people were going outside and yelling and honking horns and setting off fireworks. The Redskins won the Super Bowl. You know, they're wearing the stuff all over their cars and all that kind of stuff. Now, what would you think tonight if about 9 o'clock your next door neighbor runs outside, honks his horn, fly, you know, sets off the fireworks? The Redskins! Redskins won the Super Bowl in 1988. The Redskins won the Super Bowl. You'd say, that's weird. God gives us moments of closeness with him. But it's kind of weird to get stuck in it or to always be chasing after those things. The Bible says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. What we need to chase after is closeness to God. Pursue God. Emotions will come and go. If you pursue the emotional experience, what happens is when you don't get that experience, you'll start to doubt your faith. You'll start to wonder, did I really believe is it? Is it, is it real? So understand mountaintop experiences are wonderful if they are authentic, but understand they are rare and make your pursuit God himself. The second thing that you can expect is that what Scott Peck says is true. Life is hard. You can expect mountaintop experiences, even though they're not daily, but you can also expect that life is going to be filled with seasons of trouble. Verse 7, because of the extraordinary revelations, therefore I will not exalt myself a thorn in the, uh, uh, so that I would not exalt myself. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt Myself. Now, again, people like to speculate. What was Paul's thorn? Paul didn't tell us. Okay, so relax. You don't need to know. It doesn't matter. What does matter is it hurt. Literally, it means a, 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 a sharp thing. Paul said, it was like a knife in me. It was like a stick poking me all the time. I hated it. Can you imagine how hard that must have been for Paul? One moment, he's experiencing heaven. Next moment, thorn. You know, Sunday, close to God, heaven. Monday, pain. Sunday, chocolate cake. Monday, turnips and broccoli. I I'm actually kind of like broccoli. Kind of. I think one of the most dangerous lies that people believe is that you're entitled to happiness, that you need to pursue 
happiness. People talk about it all the time as though it's the ultimate goal. Parents will tell their kids, I just want you to be happy. I hear Christians say, hey, well, as long as the person is happy, that's all that matters. Happiness becomes the supreme moral to justify everything. Hey, if it doesn't make you happy, you might as well quit. Leave your job, leave your family, leave your marriage, because what really matters is your happiness. And people make happiness their pursuit. But God doesn't say pursue happiness. He says pursue holiness. Be holy as I am holy. And happiness will be the byproduct. One of the most one of the great guarantees to be miserable is to pursue happiness, right? It will elude you. Remember Cheryl Crow's song, If It Makes You Happy, It Can't Be That Bad? If it makes you happy, why do you feel so sad? Because happiness is a horrible goal. Paul, James says in James 1, 2, consider it great joy whenever you experience various trials because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so you may mature, complete, lacking nothing. And that's what we really want. Not momentary happiness. What we want is to be mature, complete, not lacking anything. Talked to a pastor this past week, said, how you doing? We hadn't talked for several years. He said, I'm doing okay now. But he said, I went through about a three, four-year period there that was really difficult. He had somebody on staff that was a friend and uh, they became unhappy, started spreading rumors, created division, said especially the wife, and he said they had to let the staff member go, and it caused a lot of anger in the church. He said he felt betrayed. He said, but, but, but Brett, I, I can tell you that three, four-year period, my, I was so hungry to study the Bible every day. My prayer life was never more meaningful. I was never more dependent on God. That's what God wants. That's what we want. We want not to be temporarily happy, but to be close to God so that we can really experience it by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. One pro football coach said there are two kinds of coaches in the NFL. Them that's been fired and them that's going to be fired. There are two kinds of Christians, those who suffer and those who are going to suffer. The Bible teaches there are several reasons why we suffer. One reason we suffer is just because we live in a broken world. In this world, Jesus said you will have suffering. When Adam and Eve allowed sin to come into the world, sin, uh, the world broke down. So tornadoes happen, houses burn, God's not punishing you. It's just you live in a broken world. Second reason we suffer sometimes is because of our own disobedience. After your parents tell you don't stick your finger in the electrical socket and you stick your finger in the electrical socket, you really can't say to your parents, why did you create a house like this? You know, it's like, well, no, you didn't obey. If you, um, if you get drunk and wreck your car, or do drugs and lose your clearance, if you have sex outside marriage and now you have trouble with intimacy in your relationships, don't blame God. You're experiencing the reward of your actions. But sometimes, and this is the point here in this passage, sometimes we suffer because God wants to mature us. Verse 7, so that I would not exalt myself. See, God wanted to bless Paul with humility. 
a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Loving parents let their kids <laughs> suffer. I heard the story, true story, of a kid that got in trouble. His friends were doing something bad. They got pulled in by the police. He wasn't participating in it, but he was with them. Finds himself in prison, calls his dad. Gets his one call, calls dad. Says, dad, I'm in jail. I need to... His dad interrupts him. Says, son, stop right there. Did I do anything to get you in jail? No. I'm not going to do anything to get you out of jail. Click. <laughs> the judge is, you know, they're in the hearing now in front of the judge. And the judge is handing out the sentences. And he says to the young man, did you call home? Yes. What did your dad say? My dad said, he didn't get me into trouble. He's not going to get me out of trouble. The judge says, I think you're in more trouble when you get home. You're free to go. Kind of thing. Good parents let kids experience the consequences so they can grow. Endure suffering, Paul, Hebrews chapter 12, 7. As discipline, God is dealing with you as sons. We had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. A.W. Tozer says it's doubtful whether God can ever bless anybody greatly until he has hurt him deeply. If you're going through a season of trouble right now, God has not abandoned you. He's growing you. Frederick Douglass said there is no struggle. Where there is no struggle, there is no progress. Which really leads to our third observation that Paul says, uh, God, you will experience mountaintop seasons, but they're rare. Don't chase them. You will experience much trouble. That's okay. God is growing you. But here's the over, over, overall point. In every season, you'll experience God's grace that'll be sufficient. Verse 8. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Don't you appreciate the, that Paul here doesn't do the kind of super spiritual thing? You know, he doesn't get this thorn and say, Lord, thank you very much. Give me another. No, he says, take it away. I don't want it. He prays. He asks other people to pray for him. And yet God says, no. How frustrating that must have been. Somebody said when God answers prayers, he answers one of four ways. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says wait. And sometimes he says, you've got to be kidding. This is one of those times when God said no. Paul prays and God's answer is verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness because God was wanting to bless Paul in a better way. Paul didn't understand initially, but it allowed him to experience Jesus more. Verse 10, he says, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you pray that prayer? I rejoice in insults, in weaknesses, and in injustices. This is so counterintuitive. We fear weaknesses. We loathe weaknesses. We despise weaknesses. We want to get away from our weaknesses. Every instinct, who's, every instinct in me says, I want to be Superman. What's, the, what's a fictitious person that's weak, that you think of as weak? Any thought? 
Well, good. That's where I was too. I couldn't think of a good experience. A good, a good a Barney Fife. Yeah. Well, welcome to the 1960s, Brett. But you get the. We don't want to be the weak person. We want to be the strong person. We live in D.C. It's a power town. You know, in D.C., if you're going to change things, you can't be Clark Kent. You got to be Superman. You need power. But God turns all of that upside down. This is such a wonderfully radical. <laughs> counterintuitive, counterculture idea. Quite frankly, if some of us, if some people hearing my voice really believe this, it'll change your politics, your attitude toward politics. God turns it upside down. Do you want to be a victim of injustice or do you want to be the powerful prosecutor? Well, then you read the Bible and you see Joseph. Sold into slavery and justly thrown into prison. And God uses all of that to make him a blessing to all nations. As he puts him in the position to be the second most powerful person in the whole world, to bless the world. Do you want to be a powerless shepherd or a powerful ruler? See Moses standing before Pharaoh. Who do you want to be? The powerless shepherd or the powerful Pharaoh? You want to be a barren woman who can't have children? And then you read the stories of Sarah and Rebecca and Hannah and Elizabeth. You choose weakness? Would you really want that? Would you choose to be falsely accused, a servant, facing death at the hands of an angry, unjust mob and a horrible politician? And then you see Jesus standing before Pilate. Time after time, God says, the last will be first, the first will be last. The greatest among you, servant of all, your greatest work will be done through weakness. Some call it the paradoxical power of weakness, it, but it's God's standard operating procedure. Hudson Taylor, one time, great missionary, one time said, all God's giants have been weak people. Why? Because when we are weak, we have to depend on Him and His grace. When we are weak, we get to experience, we can't do it in our power. He does it through His power, and He gets the glory. When God provides a church like New Life Christian Church, a place like the end zone, you don't say, oh, it's because it's a great church. It's because you say, oh, look what God did. All God's great work is done through weak people. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. What more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell you about Gideon, Barak. <laughs> I'm sorry. Some people think the book of Hebrews was actually a sermon. It sounds like a preacher to me. Time's too short for me to tell you the whole thing. But let me tell you about Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raising fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength in weakness, and became mighty in power. I love that, whose weakness was turned to strength. Do you want to do it in your own strength, in other words, or do you want to do it in God's? If you want to do it in God's, you're going to be used through your weakness. I'm reminded of my friend Guy Hammond who struggled with homosexual attraction all of his life, gave into it for a long time, surrendered his life completely to Christ, 
Did God take away his homosexual desires? No. But he's transformed him. He set him free. And now he has a ministry to help others. You know what it's called? Strength in weakness ministry. And God's using Guy Hammond in a great way. Isn't it wonderful that AA wasn't started by PhDs in psychology, but by a couple of alcoholics? There's no more important ministry we have at New Life Christian Church than celebrate recovery. People with hurts, hang-ups, habits that hinder them, that have damaged them, and nobody's bringing other people more healing than people in that group because they are wounded healers helping others find wound, uh, healing in Christ. I think of my friend Bill Smith who couldn't graduate from college because he was dyslexic and couldn't pass Spanish. And he's tone deaf. And God called him into ministry to be a missionary. He and his wife had the choice to go to the Alps to do youth ministry kind of work in skiing communities or to Southeast Asia. They really believed God was calling them to Southeast Asia to a tonal people, to a people whose language, they had to learn a new language, which was a tonal language. And Bill's tone deaf. Bill said sometimes they would laugh at him because he would pronounce the, the vowel in the wrong way and it would sound like he was praying to the big fat woman in the sky. <laughs> and yet God used them there and literally through that ministry started hundreds of thousands of churches. Last count, there was like 150,000 churches that they had stopped and they, and they basically couldn't count the rest. It's amazing, <laughs> Bill likes to say, it's amazing the home runs God can, can hit with a crooked stick. The Bible calls us jars of clay, that God puts his glory in jars of clay. You drop a jar of clay, it cracks. We are broken people, we are cracked people, and God uses us. So the first thing I would say to you First application is, if this is true, then refuse to think like a victim. If God specializes in turning weakness into strength, then your weaknesses are opportunities for powerful ministry. Handel didn't use his poverty as an excuse to play the victim card. He surrendered it to God and wrote the Handel and wrote the, the Messiah. Harriet Tubman didn't use her past as a slave to make her bitter. She handed it to God and became the conductor of the Underground Railroad. Johnny Erickson didn't use her paralysis as an excuse to say, I can't do anything with my life now. Instead, she surrendered it to God and has become a wonderful painter. All she can paint with is her mouth and writer and conference speaker because God specializes in using weakness. Is that encouraging for you? It's encouraging for me, that's for sure. A.W. Tozer said God can rarely use anyone greatly until he has crushed him deeply, and Paul will walk with a thorn, and God will make him strong. Second thing then, what do you need to do? You need to surrender your thorn to the grace and power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.25 God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Don't you want to have strength? Here's the, here's the question. You can do it in your own strength or you can do it in God, but the only way to live in God's strength is to surrender your weakness to Him and your strengths, by the way. 
God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise by human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. When God uses us in our weakness, he gets the credit. We stay humble, he gets the credit. So what's your thorn? Your thorn is your limitation. Your thorn maybe is that thing that you would pray, God, take it away. God, I don't like this. Maybe it's something you shame are ashamed of. With Guy Hammond, it was a temptation. With Bill, it was dyslexia. With John Erickson, it was paralysis. Surrender it to God. Have you discovered that sometimes the best coaches are not the most talented players? Because they can understand. The best teachers were not always the best, not always got the best grades as students. Why? Because in their weakness, they're able to understand, to care, to be patient, to be helpful. You were given these share cards today. How many, how many of us are tempted to look at this and not say, I'm not, I can't do this? You're right, you can't. Do you believe that God is made strong through your weakness? If so, then quit worrying about your weakness and just obey. It's not about your weakness. It's about his strength and his grace. Maybe you have a financial thorn or a physical thorn, a woundedness thorn, an education thorn. Maybe it's an, an emotional thorn. Maybe you just are tendent, you have this tendency toward depression. God will use your weakness to make you depend on him. You experience his grace and his power more. By the way, your greatest strength may very well be your greatest limitation. Samson sure was strong and it ruined him. David was great as long as he was weak, but he became strong and he committed adultery. Herod was strong. Pilate was impressive. Nero was the emperor of the Roman world, and God could only use them despite their strengths. Surrender your strengths and your weaknesses to God. Jesus said if you cling to your life, you'll lose it, but if you let your life go, you'll save it. It's the paradox of the power of weakness. By the way, is there anybody you know who needs, who would be encouraged by you sharing this with them this week? Anybody you know who feels defeated because of some weakness and they feel like it's an impediment? Maybe God's giving this to you to be able to encourage them this week. What can you expect when you follow Jesus? You can expect mountaintop experiences, but they're rare. Don't pursue them. Pursue God. You can expect pain, and that's okay. God's going to grow you. But you can expect that God's grace is going to be with you to turn weakness into strength. And God will say, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You must just obey. Heavenly Father, I thank you for how you've blessed us through Paul's closeness to you as well as his thorn.
Lord, right now, what, help us to see those things in our lives right now that we would see as thorns. They're weaknesses. We don't like them. We despise them. We wish we didn't have them. And help us to see you looking at them and saying, help us to receive you saying to us in that area, my grace is sufficient for you. Let me show my power in that weakness. God, we're a weak church. Christians are weak people in this generation. Forgive us for ever being discouraged because we see our weakness and focus on it. Help us, Lord, to be like Christ, to trust that we're in your hands, that you're in control, that you, that you do powerful things through crosses and crucifixions. You change the world. Make us your people today. It's my prayer through Christ. Amen.